Hello, welcome back to the Chief Wellbeing Officer podcast. I'm Stephen McGregor. This is episode 24, How Can Wellbeing Survive in Professional Services? So it's good to be back. Um, I hope you're having a great 2020 so far. We took a very short uh, winter break. Uh, we didn't do anything in January. And, uh, you know, just taking a step back after... 2019, which was a fairly busy year with the reboot of the podcast, and just wanted to take some time off and think about, you know, where are we going with this, and uh, not quite a reboot, but really just thinking what we're going to do going forward. And as I talked about in episode 23 in Christmas Reflections, really looking at whether we're going to move towards kind of seasonal output of episodes or just rejigging it in in some way rather than just having that kind of monthly output, which is good in itself, right? You have that accountability and, um, but I don't know, I just wanted to be a little bit more intentional. You know, I guess it's a bit of a subtle change, but you know, what we're going to try and do going forward is, you know, try and be more intentional with themes and actually release, you know, one theme per quarter that, that we'll focus on and we'll see how that goes. And then related to that, theme uh, rather than having a summary video and article in the European Business Review every single month, we'll put together a summary article on the theme which will be released each quarter uh, along with that that summary video. So a little bit less in terms of output, it gives us a bit more time, (laughs) you know, free and available time to focus on on, on the business and uh, and, and hopefully it kind of, yeah, it gives it more of a direction and, and increases the quality of the other video and, and, and written articles that's coming out. But that will still continue with the European Business Review. It will just be a little bit uh, less regular. So, yeah, you know, 2020 already, mid-February. Today is the 17th of February. Uh, it's a sunny Barcelona morning. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll get this out middle of this week. I'm sitting here with pretty sore legs. I did the Barcelona half marathon yesterday, which was very difficult. <laughs> and uh, it's getting harder as I, as I get older, I guess. And um, and also kind of sore size as Ricky Gervais was playing also the night before in, in Barcelona and Auditori, which was, which was a hilarious evening. So a good weekend. Um, and I think, you know, quiet start to the year for the lab. You know, we've been on a couple of interesting uh, client assignments and a lot of discussions going ahead with uh, with projects that are going to kick off pretty soon off to Paris next week. Spent part of January in, in, in Switzerland and, and moving around. So, But a lot of it has been kind of reflecting on my own behaviour. You know, a lot of the work that we are doing now is focusing on habits and really getting insight into how we can affect behaviour change within an organisation. And I think it's really important that you do that on a personal level as well. So really trying to have that personal experimentation or personal hacking. And there's three very quick things I just want to share here, just if you're curious on that on that front. And I think it shows that there's not always a good habit that has a reflection of a bad habit. So one bad habit I've tried to really nail down for a number of years is, is smartphone addiction, or at least just a kind of increasing creep on the amount of time that I'm using my mobile device and mindless scrolling and, and, and things like that. So that was one bad habit that I think I've really got a hang of um, really uh, decreasing so far this year in 2020. And I'll come back to the kind of, um, you know, how, how I tackled that in, in a second. But other two good habits that I've really kind of um, brought online since the start of the year, one is intermittent fasting 
Another one is, is cold showers. And I think both of those, you know, intermittent fasting has probably got more of the kind of um, uh, stronger research which supports that. It's just basically, I guess it sits within a lot of the whole context of circadian rhythm science, which is a big part of what we do. But essentially, you know, we're, we're eating a lot during the day, right? And, and, you know, especially if we're up early and even if we're thinking that we are, you know, eating healthily, there's a big time window, you know, it could be 18 hours for some people. If you have a coffee with milk first thing in the morning and then you have what you think is even a healthy snack late at night, um, then your body is still working on absorbing those calories. And essentially a lot of the research shows now that when your body hasn't doesn't have to do that in terms of absorbing calories, then it, it finds other things to do and it, it does a lot of the repair function is, that your body needs. So really, I, I tried over the years to do that and I've really um, nailed that down, I think, in the past um, six or eight weeks. And uh, what works for me is having a time window of between six and eight hours, um, which generally starts about 10 to, to kind of 6 p.m. And the one big change, oh, simply, is just don't have milk in, in my coffee when I wake up. I'm just having an Americano coffee. And the funny thing is, is that I actually now prefer coffee on its own without the milk, you know, and just in a number of weeks. It's, it's, it's amazing how you think that you can't can live without something or within, you know, within reason, like a, a Café con leche, which is a big part of the kind of Spanish culture. And then just with changing and and your body just likes the change, right? So anyway, intermittent fasting has been great so far uh, in terms of my energy and kind of weight management so far this year. And then cold showers is another one that maybe a little bit less in the established research and science, but a lot more anecdotal evidence. And even a lot of the work, if you look into kind of the work that kind of Wim Hof has done over the years, it's just fascinating in terms of how our body... Uh, and its relationship with temperature. Um, but cold showers is something that finally, after, again, also trying for about a year or two, that I've really been able to nail down. I've, and I've used a kind of basic trigger for doing that, um, which is just associated with music. And that trigger, when that song comes on, when I hear in the shower, that it just it, it kind of makes me um, endure that, that cold shower. And the first 30 seconds are horrendous. And then after that, then it's absolutely fine. Anyway, and then the smartphone addiction, one word which has really helped it almost kill it, and that one word is grayscale. Try it out, it makes a big difference. Anyway, enough of that, enough about me. Let's look at this episode. I had the great pleasure of speaking with RT Kashap Ainsley in December. This was pre-Christmas, it was recorded. I was in the Deloitte offices in London. Uh, RT is the well-being leader for Deloitte Consulting UK, a company, um, a professional services company that is doing a lot in the well-being space. You know, you have the chief well-being officer role, which was newly created last year for Deloitte in the US with Jen Fisher. So I was very curious to see how uh, Deloitte is uh, approaching this subject, right? And the question, how can well-being survive in professional services? If you think about a sector where well-being might thrive, it certainly wouldn't be professional services, right? Even if it's if it can survive in the first place. So I, I thought this was a great theme, uh, and given our own experience in working with different professional services companies um, the last couple of years, and, and still working with some of those to to look at this um, this particular question. So we have Deloitte this month, and we have EY next month, uh, and then we'll follow that up with at least one other, maybe PwC, KPMG. We're talking to a couple of companies just now uh, and hopefully we'll get at least three inputs into this this question but it was a great conversation with RT 
we're looking at the perspective of well-being within Deloitte uh, from the perspective of senior leadership, uh, from the new talent perspective, and also from the client perspective. And a lot of the things that RT is trying to do, you know, she's trying to create this culture of well-being, essentially normalizing well-being within the organization, you know, providing some tools and methods, but just more importantly, I guess, having a conversation about what that means for people who work in the company. And then the second part, which is a bit more of a challenge, is what are the changes that can occur on uh, an operational sense, right, that actually doesn't detract from the work that the consulting arm is doing, but which also, um, you know, increases the well-being of the people who are there. And you can look at these different perspectives, right, but at the end of the day, I think the most important perspective is from the perspective of a human being, no matter which level of the organisation that they're at and, and how you can take care of yourself, right? Um, there's different elements also that we look at. We touch on a little bit of empathy, a bit indirectly, and that will be the, the direct focus of next month's episode with, with EY. We look at barriers to creating that culture and, and operational changes of well-being within the organisation, how you can make the case, the importance of data and evidence. Uh, and also other things about just kind of life skills that you can learn through the lens of well-being um, for for particularly young talent within the organisation. I think there's a lot of interesting elements here in terms of what makes uh, professional services unique in terms of, you know, really long hours, lack of routine, the kind of changes when you're in an engagement and, and post-engagement. Um, and maybe those operational changes will come and, and you know, during an, an engagement, maybe you're working, you know, 12, 14 hours, where is the space for well-being there? It's a tough time, right, with some client work, but are the channels still open? Uh, and then post-engagement, is there that bounce back or flexibility for people to sufficiently uh, recover? But Artie's doing a lot of great work in this space, a lot of, um, you know, working with project teams on a team-by-team -team basis, trying to build that positive community. And, and we finish on a very interesting element on her own journey, right? So I don't think she would mind um, saying it. You know, the timing is maybe quite appropriate for broadcasting this, uh, this episode. She just gave birth to a beautiful baby girl in the past week. So many congratulations to Artie. So we talk a little bit at the end about her personal journey and the importance of role models uh, for her. Um, so that's all for me. I think this is a fantastic episode to kick off 2020 and the subtly changed uh, approach to the Chief Wellbeing Officer podcast. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy Artie's insights. And if you want to, you know, keep in touch with a lot of other things that she's doing, she's active on LinkedIn, perhaps not just now because she's on maternity leave, but I think uh, she will still be relatively active on Instagram. So if you can find her on Instagram, uh, uh, the tag is the wellness chief, and she shares a lot of really good content on there. So welcome back to the Chief Wellbeing Officer Podcast 2020. Uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. I'll see you next month. And as ever, keep well, amigos. Bye for now. Ciao, ciao. So, Artie, welcome to the Chief Wellbeing Officer podcast. Thanks for having me. So, we're here in, uh, well, the rain is almost stopping in, in, a, in mm -hmm. a December London. And it's great to be here uh, in the Delight offices. So, wellbeing and professional services perhaps not the most comfortable of 
bedfellows, right? No. But no, can you not. tell us a little bit about some of the things that you're doing in this space, please? Yeah. So the stuff that we look at, so I, from a professional services standpoint, I look at it from consulting, so consulting service line standpoint. I can talk a little bit about the different areas because basically worked across the firms um, all the service lines but um, the stuff that we focus on in consulting are really twofold so there's two elements the first box is all the things around building this sense of culture around well-being so that means creating platforms for people to engage and have conversations tools and resources that empower people to learn more about their well-being and get more curious about it um, and also to engage in, like, just engage in conversation and start to normalize things around well-being. So that's all the culture stuff that kind of sits in that one box. Mm-hmm. And then the second box is probably the harder one to move, but that's looking at operationally, how do we start to really shift the dial on what we do um, so that it starts to feel like well-being is at the core of all we do. And, and the reason why I say it's the hardest to shift is because culturally, like when you talked about it not being comfortable between the idea of like mixing well-being and professional services, it's exactly why the operations are so important. Because at the heart of what we do, we work long hours, we have a lack of routine, and you're kind of just like on this go, go, go for the client all the time, that it's very easy to kind of forego taking care of yourself and also to have that tone set from the top that that okay that in turn is okay. Um, and so that second box is probably the one I'm the most keen on, but is the one that is the one that's going to take the most time, I think, to shift. Yeah. So have you found, the, and how long have you been in this process so far? And where have you found the, the, the major resistance in this journey? Yeah. So it's been quite unique. So in consulting, I feel like we started going down this journey, I'd say about three, four years ago. Part of it started as a pilot, and then from from a pilot, it became something that we started to do full-time only just a bit over 12 months ago. In that whole shift, uh, or in that whole shift to this role becoming that, um, we also did a change in leadership. That change in leadership, which happens every four years, has definitely acted as a catalyst in the sense that one, the outgoing leadership was very focused on leaving a legacy, and so therefore well-being became you know something that our now CEO, who was the ex-head um, of consulting, was very passionate about. Um, but equally, the new leadership team coming in wanted to carry on that legacy, and also they are at the best place to kind of set a new tone for the next four years and what that looks like. Um, and so part of it, in, in the last between the last 12 months and sort of looking at the, this current fiscal that we're in, the challenge has been that the business has been going through so much change that well-being is only one of the topics that is impacted, right? So there's also things like inclusion and other agenda items that people are focusing on, but at the same time, there's a new leadership team trying to just settle down and identify what they want to do. So that's definitely been a bit of a challenge to maneuver around. But now as the dust settles, you're starting to see that actually it is a priority. I'm like on quite a senior agenda item and list all the time. So like you're seeing it a little bit more. The other thing is that well-being is one of those topics where unless people are quite interested in it it doesn't become a topic of interest until there's an issue or a challenge and so therefore as much as you want to push people to be proactive they won't be proactive in the most part unless they have something to react to yeah and and that's given again goes back to the nature of the job and the speed at which we go at and so i think that's just a natural 
like inhibitor in, in that sense. And the other, which I think a lot of other organizations will share is leadership. And I don't necessarily think that our new leaders are, I think they're actually really great beacons of all of this stuff. But equally, if you look at the partnership and even the directors and senior managers, you do have a very high percentage of people that have been in the business for a really long time. Therefore, they've grown up through the ranks and kind of grown up through that idea of you just kind of suck it up and get along, get on with it versus I think the newer generation, which is more or less like I want to take care of myself. It's important. Why isn't somebody asking me how I am on a regular basis? Why can't I make time for the gym and things that I want to do? It's it, it, it's a, very much a divide between the two. And I think sometimes that that has an issue in terms of setting the tone and therefore providing role models for juniors to start looking up to and also for that tone to start carrying through in the business. Yeah. No, there's some really interesting points. And I was going to ask you about that generational change, mm-hmm. right? Because you have to speak to both audiences at the same time. Um, so you have this opportunity of the change in leadership. You need to get that buy-in from the top. It's really interesting, this aspect about fixing, right? It's just mm-hmm. that kind of, okay, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So taking that yeah. proactive um, approach is difficult. Do the senior leadership, I mean, you know, and, and I get that point also that, you know, you maybe come through that experience of about, you know, I've suffered through this, then, then everyone else kind of, <laughs> that's part of the job, right? Yeah. It's part of the kind of evolution. Um, are, are they looking for something different? Are they looking for like an ROI on well-being? Are they looking for the business case? How do you talk to them to to make the, the you know convince them that this is the right way to go? Yeah, so I actually think the leadership is quite bought into it. I think because inherently as as humans at the core of it, they understand the importance behind taking care of themselves. I mean, none of them would be where they are if they hadn't taken care of themselves. And I think it's a very interesting shift. I don't know what it's like in other professional services firms. But here, after um, you make partner, you go through things like every year you have a medical, you have a, co- you'll have a, a personal coach, you'll have people that are kind of supporting you. And I think what you end up seeing is people that make partner in the first year, they go through such an evolutionary change in terms of how they take care of themselves because they, be- they inevitably become the face of the business. And I think because of the stake they have in the business, there's this huge element of them having to take care of themselves. And therefore, then I think that they, they definitely are starting to take care of themselves, but they're doing it at a different level. So they weren't necessarily thinking about it when they were a senior consultant or a manager or whatever. And so on. So the mentality that they might have had was at those junior grades, I had to grind to get to where I am. And now I've gotten to where I am. And so now it's okay to kind of take a step back and take care of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that... If for them, it's just trying to translate the things that they're learning into the importance and value that their teams should start seeing and the tone that they therefore want to set. And I think oftentimes what ends up happening is that when we have all these well-being conversations in the business, there's a lot of emphasis on getting people and their teams to think about it for themselves. But the reality is in every one of those conversations, you equally need to make the leaders sit back and think about it for themselves so that they can start to relate to the people they're having the conversations with. So I think that's one element. I think there definitely is a piece around data and everyone really being interested in data. I mean, at the heart of it, professional services firms were like number crunchers. So yep. everyone, evidence. yeah, yep. everyone yep. wants something with evidence. And, and while I think there's, we're making waves in terms of lo- starting to look at data, I think also it's shared with a lot of organizations outside of even the professional services field 
but actually the data is very subjective. So one, the challenges are around HR data not being complete. And the other thing about it is it's subjective. So it's dependent on what people actually report and how honest and comfortable they are. Then the other thing is you cannot, and I'm like a firm believer in it, you cannot look at HR data without looking at performance data. And that connection isn't often made. Like what are the right metrics to look at and how do you draw that connection? Um, and then the third is that obviously there's a lot of organizations, including ours, that focus on, oh, how can we look at survey data? And again, survey data doesn't get everyone. And again, it's subjective because it's dependent on when someone fills it out. It's dependent on what people think the perception is when, and how it can get traced back to them in terms of how they fill it out. So there's a lot of question around it. But I definitely think the data thing is a huge thing. Yeah. No, that's great. And that's that just making me think also... Um of client work and and and, and is mm-hmm. there influence or, or pressure and you know in a good way from the client work that you do, which again is is you know a lot of what professional services is about. You know, interesting even the point you made before then on the experience, let's say, or the a lot of the work that we do is in design thinking and even the journey mm-hmm. is changing yeah. from you know coming into a firm and then just you know making that 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 progression through. Uh, and, and arriving at the senior ranks. And a lot of what I've been thinking also in, in terms of this broader theme of well-being and professional services is the aspect of lead user theory, right? If you look at design thinking, you think, yeah. okay, if you, if you can make it work in this extreme environment, then you're going to innovate and you're going to look at, in your instance, it's going to be cultural aspects and operational aspects yeah. that's then going to work in other environments that are maybe less extreme, yeah. right? In professional services, in terms of the amount of hours that you work mm-hmm. and the pressure on people is, I think, an example of a, of a lead user environment, right? So I thought that's that's kind of interesting. In t- so that's the, the, you know, looking at maybe influence or pressure from the top. The two other areas, as I said, so clients, uh, and then also from the bottom up in terms of expectations of new talent coming through mm-hmm. the door. How does that influence in terms of bringing or, or growing this cultural yeah. well-being? So one, I think clients is a big one. Um, And I actually, I think I spend more time now talking to partners about this unique position that we're in. The unique position is, is that every day we're at the forefront of working with other organizations. And therefore, what that gives us is a platform to really instigate change at all aspects of businesses. I mean, if you look at the statistics around well-being, um, the reality is is that we're it, Deloitte's not the only company that's going through it, right? Like the statistics are hitting everyone, and organizations and clients that we work for of equal size are dealing with the same thing and are all like facing the same conundrum in terms of how we address well-being and how we provide support in our businesses. And so therefore, through our projects, we're at such a unique place to have that conversation and figure out how do we set these project teams up for success. But I think oftentimes there's just this view from our side that we're providing a service and therefore because there's competition in being able to provide that service, it's how do we provide it in the best way to keep that longstanding relationship. And equally on the client side, they're paying for a service and what they want is a service, not necessarily to make a long life best friend which is, I think, at the heart of what we try to do, but isn't necessarily the reality of it. So I think there's a part as on educating people, educating people across the firm to how do we leverage these platforms so that we can make change together. 
Um, and then the second is then obviously on the young talent piece that you said. So the new generation coming in, like our workforce is as young as 18, some 16, when you look at like industrial placements and people coming in summer vacation schemes. Um, and they are quite unique in the sense that obviously they have, have probably had more um, openness to things like mental health. They are definitely more open in terms of conversation and they have higher expectations around wanting to find meaning in work and feel valued. They value money less. Like, I mean, their whole value structure is very different compared to what it was like if you look at like the partner and senior group. Um, and we are starting with a lot of education. So this year, for example, we take quite a big grad intake in, I think it's over close to a thousand. And in all of them, they were all educated. So we had like a big one hour and a half session where they were forced to kind of sit back and one, learn more about the well-being environment in general. So be open to hearing statistics, what we've heard in the business, like all that kind of stuff. But equally, it's been about educating them on how they have the conversations. Because I think the other aspect is, is that there's a lot around this younger generation about being entitled and therefore coming into the workplace and not being able to have the maturity to have the conversations. And so part of it is giving them the tools to say, you can have it, the conversation, you are entitled to it, but it's how do you have it? And how do you set yourself up for success to have it? And so there was a big focus on having them reflect on how, how could I construct the things that I really need to articulate to my project managers? And then how do I then feel like I have the confidence to do that? And we have started to see a massive shift. Like last week, I actually was on a firm-wide call for our mental health champions. And someone put up their hand saying that in consulting, we've seen such a shift this year in the junior talent because they feel like they're so much more weaved into the business because they feel like they've had this education and now feel like they can have the conversation that they need to have and feel like they're supported in the way they need to be. That's a great point. And I think that's a real strong business case for well-being as well. I mean, yeah. some of our own clients recently, uh, and I guess this is true across the board, we've seen um, people at a very early age being promoted to positions that would normally happen yeah. in the past, right? So they're even in kind of general manager positions and big innovative companies in their kind of mid-late 20s. And intellectually, you know, brilliant. But the emotional part, is sometimes the bit that needs to get worked on, right? And and even dealing with things like stress and, yeah. and, and, and poor mental health, right? So I think promoting well-being helps with that kind of emotional maturity, let's say, for younger managers yeah. who tick the box on being able to get the job done, yep. but often leading other people and just, you know, having even that conversation with themselves, are they well? Then, then that's going to help in that respect, I think. You know. It's also basic, like, life skills. Like, last week we did a session on financial well-being. Um, and it's not something we often talk about, but if you look at some of the things that we've heard from the junior talent in the business, I mean, again, some of them are coming in right out of A-levels. And when they're coming in, they just, some of them have never had a job. They don't know what it's like to have money and therefore how to manage their money. And then, therefore, they're spending way beyond their means, getting into financial troubles, which then translate into some of the stress that they might feel but it's sort of that ties back to some sort of basic life skills that we need to feel a moral responsibility to kind of educate especially if we're going to take talent at that, that level last year i was um sat at a at dinner or i started a luncheon and i met a random couple and we were speaking and they were saying that they're quite angry because their son is 17 18 and he's trying to get recruited into all these new programs that convince him that he doesn't need to go to university to get a job. 
And as parents, they were like, I'm actually angry at organizations for doing this because I feel like you're brainwashing my child to feel like they don't need an education and you just want to get them in because they're, you know, cheaper labor and, and to do the job. And, but you don't want to support them from like a life standpoint. And I, I quite agree because I think even as someone who interviews some of these younger candidates, I mean, I came through a, a time when you went to university and you got educated and therefore you understand the maturity and growth that you had. And so I'm always sort of mindful of, well, what do we need to do to also set them up for success? And I think it's not just about well-being, but looking at the broader sort of how do we set you up for life success? Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And even in the last, um, who knows when we're going to um, broadcast this episode, but in the November episode, uh, we looked at the, the aspect of education. Yeah. There's a World Innovation Summit on Education in Qatar. Mm. And we talked about how how learning is changing and is university still relevant? And if we think about the value that we get from university, it isn't just really the degree or the kind no. of functional expertise. It's it's those life skills, right? It's the socialization. Yeah. It's becoming an adult. And sometimes if you're skipping that and going straight into the workplace, there is value, of course, but you're missing out on that whole chunk yeah. of learning that you would get from university. So it's really interesting. And even in the financial well-being piece, you know, even we're seeing a lot more of that now in, in the yeah. well-being space, right? And I think it's interesting even when companies, for example, Santander, you know, a big aspect of their well-being program is financial well-being because yeah. they have, they feel that there's that validity that they can really uh, make that a big arm of what they're doing. That's great. Um, you know, looking at, again, and coming back to the kind of first point on well-being and professional services, I don't know if it's quite the elephant in the room, but at the end of the day, if you're really working those long hours, which professional services yeah. are famous for, how do we get beyond that? If you're, if you're promoting well-being and you're, you have the cultural aspect, you have, and especially in the operational sense, mm. when you know people might be working, I don't know, 10, 12 hours, working yeah. late at night, cause, or d- during a project at least, how does that square? Do you, can you convince people? Do you work less? I mean, what, what, what happens in that space? It's a difficult one, right? Yeah, it is difficult. And I think that part of it is is that even in the communication around it it's not saying that we're going to take the 12-hour workday and condense it to eight because the reality is exactly what you said the nature of some of the projects that we're doing and the timelines and deadlines especially if i look at things like compliance or some of the work that the public sector does it is very time sensitive i think the reality is is that it's embedding and weaving into all of that that actually we care about you and it means that if you have to work 10 to 12 hours then it's okay to take a break in between or it's okay to instill some flexibility into that it's okay to say you know that maybe for a week or two we're really busy and we're kind of these are the hours but then after you know you take the time that you need it's more or less making it feel like in those engagements and on that on those projects the conversations are still happening so it doesn't feel like when i enter in all you care about is the client and the deliverable Instead, you care about me as a human. And second to nature is what we have to deliver. And I get the constraints of what we have to deliver, but you're constantly doing that check-in. You're constantly seeing how I'm doing. You're making sure that you know we do have a team, we are leaning on each other. So it means that if one person really needs a break, you're alleviating that person. Um, I mean, I think it would be unfair to, to promise that we could make all of the hours go down to a seven, eight hour workday, because I don't think that's gonna happen. But I think there's a big importance around talking to people and understanding what it is that they want and how we can then support them that way. That's great. Have you arrived at the point of 
implementing uh, aspects like that mm. on, on an operational level? Do you have pulse checks? I mean, is it a leadership issue that the senior partners are checking in with their team during yeah. a project? Have, have you got that far yet? Yeah, so some things are already in place, um, but they're not consistently done, right? So we operate it in consulting. We're a big funnel. So it's consulting wide. Then you have your portfolios. Then your portfolios, you have op units. And then you have your projects at the, at the bottom of it. And every experience is different. Um, and as much as you try to say like, oh, here's a toolkit that you should embed at the beginning of every project, you don't know if everyone's going to do that. But the education is coming around there. So I'd say a huge percentage of my time gets spent going out to project teams and almost like hosting or facilitating these pulse checks for partners to hear firsthand, like what are some of the challenges and therefore what are the things that we need to address on the ground for them. And the other thing is then helping project teams identify what are some of the things I can put in frequently to make sure I'm getting that pulse check. So whether that's at a weekly team meeting, asking everyone to like rank their well-being out of 10 and talk about why they're feeling the way they are and or doing things like instilling like appreciation awards or whatever or allowing people lunch breaks or whatever it is it's identifying what like what are the things that we need to do to support people so we've had some really good examples of projects investing money in the teams in terms of like providing gym memberships to people that are traveling for example and or making sure that they get healthy snacks and um food and stuff in the office that because maybe they're in a more rural area and don't have access to that stuff people that are doing like team walks or runs or signing up for challenges together. There's a lot of that kind of community feel and things being put in and equally projects that are starting to do that with the client in tandem. Mm -hmm. um, so there are definitely some good examples, but what I won't say is that it's consistent because I think, again, it comes back to that, what's that tone that the leadership sets mm -hmm. and the mentality that people carry. And some people just don't live by that and therefore they don't do that but we're trying to look at like we've just um rolled out a new role in the business called the people leader and that was a big way of kind of educating people across the board so that they can start to lead with more of that mentality and then more of that leadership training will will, will hopefully start to instill some more of those behaviors really interesting looking at a more kind of personal level um and we had the talk just before, uh, yeah. you know, and, and meeting together for the first time face to face. So you're expecting your first child yeah. in a couple of months. So that's that's great news. Um, so you're going to come up against a lot of personal choices in yeah. in, in in the next uh, little while. Um, I don't know any kind of reflections on that. It's an exciting time in your life, of course. And we talked previously before we started recording on the importance of, of role models, right? Yeah. So maybe that's something that you can talk about and, and then maybe some of your own thoughts in, in this space. Yeah, so I think I'll say, to, I, I'll, maybe I'll go the reverse and start with the other stuff first and then go to role models. Um, I think the thing that I've come across with people that work in well-being is that most times or most often than not, people that work in this space have some sort of background in it whether it's a qualification of some sort or a personal experience of like whether it's with them or people around them and therefore the connection to the topic is quite strong as a result of that i think we become the we almost become you know at our own detriments because we're forcing ourselves to work even harder because we're so married to the topics um, and I've found that since I've, you know, since we found out that we were expecting and even before I had told the partners and kind of started going down this whole path of like preparing for mat leave and all that stuff, I definitely looked at my year and was like, how can I set the business up for success? And therefore, if I look at sort of the past six, seven months, I'd say it's probably been the busiest period that I've ever had because in so many ways I'm trying to do so much 
and leave enough of a legacy behind so that whomever is kind of ticking the boxes while I'm away has everything kind of stood up and set up for them so that I feel it's personal obligation to make sure that the business doesn't suffer as a result of the life choice that I've chosen to make. At the same time, I have equally found role models, which I think we talked about before, that for a long time um, in my professional services career, I looked really hard for role models. And I, I couldn't find them. They're, you know, on top of sort of well-being issues we talk about, there's also a lot of challenges, I think, around diversity and inclusion. Um, and it wasn't very often that you would see or find a lot of senior female partners. It just so happens now that where I sit in the business and the partners that I report into, one being sort of the head of consulting and one being the, the people and purpose partner, they're both very senior women that sit on the consulting exec both very much role models in terms of having family, children, all that stuff. And so it was, it's been quite nice to find that and lean on that because I think in all of the anxiousness and stuff that I'm dealing with, I've had really strong females basically been able to kind of almost hold my hand through it and, you know, say it's okay and kind of manage expectations and help me understand that it's doable and provide a bit of a visual for the fact that knowing where they are and where they've come to, I know that I'm capable of doing that. Um, And then I think that coupled with the idea of like, actually the industry I work in is about taking care of yourself, um, is that it's, you know, almost having that self-talk to come bring myself down to, right, how do I actually just take care of myself and like allow myself to live these life moments and then have that as part of my story that I tell and part of, you know, the relationship that I can bring back into the business in terms of how I can relate now to another type of person in the business that perhaps I couldn't relate to before and understand. Um, and it's just starting to put all of those pieces together. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I detect those comments, it's, it's about how you can enrich, um, you know, your working life, right? Yeah. You know, and, and, and things are changing. It's not work and it ceased to be for a long time. It's not just work and life and you in or out, but you have one life and, and work is a big element of that. Yeah. And how can you enrich it, as you say, through those life experiences, you know, the importance of things like empathy. Uh, and I think you'll quickly find that you'll be a role model for uh, yeah. a lot of others moving into the future, right? And I think even the diversity piece is interesting, right? Because I think, you know, perhaps in the past, you know, uh, you know, as, you know women in a leadership position, they had it, women had it hard enough to, to get to those positions, perhaps traditionally, historically, right? So then putting on top of that, can you have a family as well? And then you can get tickled, yeah. you know, it's pretty difficult, but... You know, hopefully now you have the well-being piece of diversity, inclusion, and things. You know, moving we hope yeah. in the right direction in terms of positive cultures and positive enterprises. Yeah. Um, then it will become more of the norm in the future, right? And I and I think that will help if we think of the lead user thing. It'll help not just women but everyone, right, within the organisation. I firmly believe that. Yeah, and I think the other thing is that change takes time, and that was probably one of the biggest pieces of advice advice that was given to me by the the two female partners was not it wasn't just necessarily advice but a comment that was almost like you'll go away and you'll be so worried that when you come back you won't recognize things but actually you'll come back and the thing that would have changed the most would have been you and there'll be conversations still being had that you'll be like we haven't figured that out yet and it's very true because you just think about the topics and that we're trying to cover uh, uncover and change and those things don't change overnight. And so I, I can have a bit of reassurance knowing that some of these conversations are going to be going on for a while, but also in the sense that there is this wave that's going to take place and it won't happen overnight because it, it certainly hasn't yet. Yeah. 
looking to the future and just the final point um what's the what would you like to see you know you know personally you've got your own journey that you're going to go on but you know in an organizational sense and well-being within a sector like professional services um i don't know what what what's the kind of vision that you would like to to see in the next couple of years is it just that the culture is normalized that we know how to make it work operationally is it just that we have the channels open in this yeah. space what, what do you think any final reflections I think at the heart of it, professional services businesses are people businesses. And I think we have been people focused, but people focused on the client side. I think if I had to construct everything into one view, it'd be that I'd like to come to work and know that I actually work for an organization that has put their people at the heart of everything that they do versus the client side. Um, and I think that that's kind of the vision I see where, you know, we come to work and we don't just see people as bodies, not saying that that's what we do, but you know what I mean? Like, I just don't want that to be the case. Um, but I'd rather than be seen as humans and therefore businesses taking more of that moral obligation to take care of their people versus just, you know, trying to churn out and make, turn them out and, and turn them into revenue dr- uh, driving machines. Yeah. No, fantastic insights. Thank you for your time today, oh, RT. Thanks for having me. And it was best of luck in the future. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye bye.